sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour you'll find them at the back of the range and here's your host ben adelberg and welcome to the back of the range i am your host ben adelberg this is episode 287 yes it has been a little while since the last episode was posted very sorry about that, but there has been quite a bit going on here at HQ. Specifically, I'm rebuilding the studio, so everything is torn apart, but I think I think I see a light at the end of the tunnel. The upgrades are going to be well worth it. At least that is what I keep telling myself. Now, I just got back a little while ago from the Jones Cup Invitational at Sea Island. David Ford picks up the win. It was a shootout down the stretch between David and Caleb Surratt and Seriously, what else could you ask for? This is the first big amateur tournament of the year. You got two guys that are ranked top 10 in the world. Ford birdies the 18th hole to win. So congrats to him. David has basically thrown the first hat into the ring, so to speak, with regards to U.S. Walker Cup consideration. So it was a massively strong field there at Jones Cup. He comes out on top, so congrats to him. I can't say enough about the Jones Cup. John Wade, Charlie Killian, the entire team at Ocean Forest and Sea Island. I cannot think of a tournament run better from top to bottom than the Jones Cup Invitational. So I am very excited to be back there again very soon. And also, in case you missed it, Augusta National awarded a special master's exemption to Gordon Sargent from Vanderbilt University. He's the reigning NCAA national champion. This is the first special exemption awarded in over 20 years to an amateur. This is absolutely massive for amateur golf. So I'm very excited to see how Gordon does at the Masters, but also just tremendously excited for where amateur golf is going this year. So stay tuned for Gordon's appearance at the back of the range. That is coming very soon. So make sure you keep listening and keep following the back of the range in Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before getting into this week's episode, Again, heading into the fifth year of the back of the range, I wanted to thank everyone for all of their support. Just before the new year, we passed over 1 million downloads. Absolutely mind-blowing. I never expected that the back of the range would become what it is today. I think this is going to be the biggest year yet. I think I say that every single year, but um, I really do think this is going to be the biggest year for the back of the range. There are some surprises coming your way, some big announcements coming. So thank you to every guest, listener, player, fan, follower, friend. You're all friends. So thank you for all of the support that you've shown me. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for what's coming this year. Uh, merch is still available. Head over to thebackoftherange.com for that. Make sure you're following on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're going to jump into this episode. My guest is Rob Couture, one of my favorite mid-ems that I run into uh, all over the place, all over the country, really. You know, numerous Texas Golf Association titles to his name. He won the Canadian Mid-Amateur in 2011, which got him a spot in that 2012 RBC Canadian Open. He's also a member at Merido, a place that's near and dear to my heart. He has plenty of great stories about what goes on at Merido, the pros that are playing there, and also, oh, by the way, a World Golf Hall of Famer that just, you know, hangs out at, of course, you know, the back of the range. So let's jump into this episode. Rob, welcome to the back of the range. How are you? 
I'm good, Ben. Thanks for having me on. I guess maybe we'll set a record for low viewer listenership this week. I don't know um, if people have interest in what I have to say or not, but I think it'll be it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Okay, so we're going to have to work on your self-esteem. Um, we kind of we kind of <laughs> like, you know, confident, arrogant people to come on this podcast to kind of, you know, match the host. But um, I, I think I think we're going to find some things to talk about, Rob, that, that some people will like to hear. So I, I think you're selling yourself short. And, uh, you know, don't be such a slouch. This is going to be a good one. I have, I have high hopes for you and for me, and, and we're going to get it done. We're doing this. It's court, towards the tail end of the year. We're kind of putting a bow on 2022, looking forward to 23. And we're talking on December 21st. Um, I'm getting a lot of travel advisories about this, that the bad weather that's coming to hit this country. Um, you're in Dallas, Texas. What is coming your direction for this holiday season weather-wise? Because I think, I think it's going to be ugly, isn't it? It's going to be cold. We There's not much golf being played. In fact, I got... I. I hear at Merida, they're covering the greens today. So really? I think we're going to probably be, cl- yeah, I think we're going to be closed for the next week or so. So not that I'd be playing anyway, it's too cold for my blood. Um, but I, I don't think there's a lot of golf going to be played here over the next week or so. And um, that's okay with me, but there, it, it is supposed to be cold. I don't know if we'll get any snow, but it's going to be down in the teens. Are you comfortable? I know you're, you live in Dallas, Texas, and, and you're, you're, you're proud to, to be a Texan, but, are you aware that as a as a Canadian, you just said it's too cold for me? I mean, are, are you comfortable with that being on a recorded podcast saying that as a Canadian that that it's too cold? What's the coldest <laughs> weather that you've ever played golf in where you were kind of like, yeah, this is about it for me. I think this is it. I've played in some cold weather, man. I mean, growing up, I've played in some very cold weather. I, I think that's probably ended here the last few years. We've played with snow on the ground. When I grew up, you didn't have a choice. So I grew up on a little nine-hole golf course, and we just went around it time and time and time again. And we would play with snow on the ground because that was that was the option. It was March or April, and there was still snow. Um, but here, I'll, I'll maybe play when it's 50, but it's probably got to be sunny and not much wind. My I, my blood thinned out a little bit here the last few years. Gotcha. I understand. No, I I'm I'm kind of in the same spot. It, it, once that wind kicks up, that kind of changes everything. But that nice crisp day with no wind and the sun's out. That's those are pretty special days. Yes, I'll play on those days for sure. Where did uh, tell me about this nine holer in Canada? I always like I, I love it when I have guests that talk about learning on a nine holer that i love that that's like the ultimate junior golf experience tell me about the club that you play golf at it was it's a little nine holer it's still there called trenton golf club it it didn't have carts it didn't have a putting green it didn't have a (laughs) range it had nothing it was a true little nine hole golf course and i think i think it was like a hundred bucks or something and you could play all you want all season and i had buddies and we just went and played we'd go out and we'd go around that thing five six seven times in a day probably a lot of the time in the summer uh, I could walk there from home. And so I, it was a ton of fun. I mean, it was a great place to grow up playing golf my first couple of years because I didn't hit balls. I didn't practice. I just learned to play the game. Um, and it was a lot of fun. We, we just, we had, you know, chipped and putted for quarters and dollars and stuff like that. We played a ton, but, but you really learned to play golf and, and it was fun. It was rough around the edges, still rough around the edges, but it was a great little place to play until I kind of got to the point where, I was starting to play a little competitive golf. 
Well, I, I'm looking at trentongolf.ca, their website, which is actually a really nice website, but I'm looking at this. 2023 memberships, folks. Get them while they're hot. Full privileges, unlimited play, includes green fees and handicapping, $650. Are you kidding me? I mean... What a, what a steal. I mean, I, I almost think I just want to become a member just to support the club and just say that, Hey, I belong to Trenton golf club. Um, what's your record? What's, I mean, this is 2,800 yards. You know, you got par threes, fours, and fives. It's not a, it's not a par three course. I know, I know you said it's a par three. It's more of a shorter nine hole course, but 2,800 yards. That's, I mean, that's respectable as a kid, right? I mean, that's, that's, you're hitting every shot. It was, yeah, it was respectable. It had a par five. The yeah. ninth hole was a par five. Yeah, there were a lot of par threes, but there were also some par fours and, a, and one par five. And the greens actually were half decent. They were decent. There weren't a lot of bunkers. There were a couple. Um, but it was just a fun place to go play golf. My mom still plays there. She goes and walks and pushes her push cart with her friends and plays golf there. But it was so a cool. it was a fun little place. And by the way, that 650 bucks is Canadian money too, Ben. So it's probably more like 500 50 oh. depending on the exchange rate your dollar goes a lot further i there. i'm glad you pointed that out this is this is becoming a more and more attractive thing uh uh as it is <laughs> i mean this is but yeah this is really cool and i think this is a great way um and i'm guessing the characters that you must have run into i mean there's got to be that collection of old guys that are always there and playing for quarters and i mean the the, the culture there i'm probably exactly the same it was, it was just like that. Yes. There were guys always lurking around the tee. It had the little thing that you put your ball in. Yes. Little uh, spiral, that showed little when it was your thing. turn to play. Absolutely. It had one of those. Okay. And so it was a lot of just older guys who played out there. And it's a pretty small town. It's a town of 15,000 people, pretty blue collar. I and mean, it couldn't support a country club. Um, but it was a great little place to play. It was fun. Like I said, it, there's, there's a activity out there a lot of people that just go walk their nine holes there's a little curling club right across the street you know curling is big up there too so people will play golf and then they'll they'll go over to the curling club if it's in the spring or fall i'm still waiting for curling to really become a big hit here in south florida um it just i don't i I think you'll be waiting i think you'll be waiting a while probably it hasn't happened yet yeah i was at the i was at the western am this year at exmoor and it took me a while to figure it out, but their cart barn is actually a curl. I don't even know the right terminology. Curling facility. It's not a court. What do, what do you call that? I mean, gosh, I don't mind looking. looking. Uh, a rank. I think you call it a rank. Rank. Okay, curling rank. rank. But I yeah, so so basically, the curling rink was the cart barn. And until someone pointed yep. out to me, I didn't understand it. So yeah, I don't. I apologize, to everyone listening, that's expecting me to be knowledgeable on all the curling lingo. I'm I'm letting everyone down. I can you know barely hold it together with golf. But but yeah, I I, I don't think that's going to happen in South Florida. But yeah, this looks like just uh, this looks like a lot of fun. When did you start? You mentioned you know transitioning into really competitive golf where you kind of need to branch out you kind of need to go play those courses that are longer more demanding and that have more demanding competition when did uh you know when did golf really become uh, you know the primary uh, athletic endeavor of your uh, childhood i was probably 13 or so i mean it's different now it's like parents feel like now if their kids aren't playing by five or six that they're behind you know that was not the case when i was growing up playing golf i was probably 12 or 13 when i started to kind of dabble a little bit in playing some 
some competitive golf. Um, there was another club in the area, probably half hour away, um, that I went and joined. It was a semi-private club. We actually had a bunch of guys there who ended up being really successful. John Mills, who played on the PGA Tour for a couple of years, was there. He's the head coach at Kent State now. And his brother, Jeff, played Division One golf. And we had four or five guys play Division One golf out of that, that other little club called Bay of Quinney Country Club. Um, so I was probably 12 or 13 when I really started to, to get interested in playing some competitive golf. Um, and, you know, luckily there, too, we had a, a pretty decent group of young guys who played a lot of golf, and, and we were pretty competitive. Now, while I'm looking and trying to figure out how you make it from from Canada, from Ontario to, to, to East Tennessee State to play college golf, I'm trying to figure out the, the correlation. And then, and then as we spoke about it earlier, you mentioned two words, and it all came into, in, into view. Into the, the picture was, was crystallized. Brennan Webb. Brennan Webb was a guest on this podcast. He is the, uh, you know, obviously a product of Canada. He's the current head coach at the University of Tennessee men's golf program. And as soon as you said that, I'm like, oh, I, I got it. I understand now. So Brandon Webb played golf at East Tennessee State a year ahead of you. That was he basically kind of introduced you to what uh, what college golf in, in the United States would be all about, I'm guessing. He did. He did. We we played a lot of junior golf together against each other and played in you know, best ball events together and that type of thing. He lived a few hours away from me at home, but we became really good friends. And he went down there a year ahead of me, played for Fred Warren, uh, who was a great coach, retired a couple of years ago. Um, and we had some really good teams down there. And they were just, uh, you know, I, I had gotten recruited by a decent number of schools, but um, it was a really, it looked like a great fit for me. It was a really good program, good mid-major program um good coaching we had pretty decent facilities and so yeah he was kind of the catalyst for me going there we were we were teammates um for a couple years Garrett Willis was on that team who played the PGA Tour Keith Nolan who played the PGA Tour played the Walker Cup so we had some really good teams there and it was a really cool place to go to school I mean that's got to be a lot of fun when you're a kid growing up in Canada getting recruited to get out of that cold weather and go someplace South and play college golf. I mean, you had to be just pinching yourself. Think, I mean, I kind of remember that's what Brendan was talking about. He's like, Oh my gosh, I got, I can play golf year round now. I can, you know, be exposed to all sorts of different kind of courses. What was kind of your acclimation, um, you know, process? And I mean, not, not a massive culture shift, but still you're playing a lot of golf. We were playing a lot of golf and, and just at a higher level. I mean, like I said before, I, I grew up you know, at, at a smaller golf course playing one day events, you know, and I, I played some AJGA events and had some decent success and that type of thing, but never, you know, consistently at the level of playing golf, practicing and being held to a higher standard, like coach Warren held us to, he was, he was tough. And I just had not been around that uh, in my life as far as from a golf perspective. So it was very, very different, you know, going to practice every day, uh, going to study hall every night, uh, working out, all that sort of stuff. It, it was, it was a, an eye opening experience for me. Um, and my, I, I was not that great. Like I, I was decent at golf, but I never grew up with a coach. I never grew up, you yeah. know, being a kind of ball striker, like a lot of these guys were, I just knew how to play golf. And, you know, I, I was decent. I was a kind of a fourth or fifth man, but I was never 
going to get to the point where I was the best player on those teams. It just wasn't going to happen at that time. Kind of interesting. Now you look at these kids that are coming out, the ones that I see and yeah, there there's, there's no Rob Couture's. There's no guys that are just like, Hey, I just kind of play and I know how to get the ball around. It seems like they're all coming out of the same factory. You know, they have the coaches, they have the swing coach, they have the, the routines and they're playing a lot more golf than I think kids were, you know, at at your age, my age, it's just completely different now. They're playing a ton more golf. They're playing a lot of national golf. There, there's not kind of the intimidation factor with these kids now. I mean, yeah. these junior, these juniors are playing in the Western Am. They're playing the Porter Cup. They're playing in these big events, and and that just that was very rare when I was kind of growing up playing. I'm 47 now, but but it was really rare. But now there, there's no intimidation factor. These kids are playing against all the same guys when they go to college, and they feel like they can beat them. There's, it's it's a little bit like the college guys going to the PGA Tour now. They they play in PGA tour events. They play in practice with these guys. There's no, there's no off factor. I don't think anymore, not much with these guys like there was with when I was growing up. Yeah. I'm seeing, I'm seeing that all the time, just traveling around the country and, and going to, to amateur tournaments. And I mean, gosh, you know, being at even, you know, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but even the U S women's four ball Merido, you know, just general chairman, you you're seeing these girls that are, I mean, gosh, 14, 15, 16 years old. And they're just, yeah, off the golf course, they're 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 enjoying themselves, but they get on there and they're just they're killers. They're very polished for sure, and uh, you know the the college golfers that we see around Merido, and we have a bunch. But you know, even my friends now are starting to have kids who are really competitive. My buddy Seth Sargent, his son Gordon, obviously is probably the best player in college golf. I mean, he was so ready to go play college golf when he was a freshman. Yeah, and that that just never ever happened when we were playing. You know, it took you a few years to get things figured out. And these kids now have no fear. They're really well coached, and they they played a ton of competitive golf before they go and play playing college. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens with him and with that other. I mean, there's just so many young players that are coming up, freshmen and sophomores in college that, uh, you know, obviously we're entering a Walker Cup year. They're, I think the Walker Cup team, they just got done with the practice session down here in South Florida last week. But just looking at that, the, the 16 guys that were invited to, uh, to, to join that practice session, there's a lot of 19, 20, 21, 22-year-olds. It's going to be a young, a really young team. It is, and I don't know a ton of those guys. Obviously, I know the couple mid-ams who are on that squad. Um, you know, I can tell you there's there's a young man, Cole Sherwood, from Vanderbilt, who yeah. I've hosted a couple, couple times out at Merida a little bit. You know, Albert Huddleston, our owner, is a Vanderbilt guy, and, and Cole comes into Dallas at times. And so I spent a few days playing with him at Merida, and it's just the, the level of just being polished is just incredible. I mean, you know, these guys, they don't look much different than tour players at this point. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's shocking to me. Yeah. Well, I, it's going to be fun to watch. I know that, um, I know you're playing quite a bit of mini-am golf, but I didn't, I didn't want to skip over the fact you talked about East Tennessee state. Now you, you didn't finish your college career there. You went to Eastern Michigan and, you know, had a, had a great coach there, Bruce Cunningham. What was kind of the thought process of moving to Eastern Michigan? I know you, um, you, you mentioned you weren't going to be the number one player at East Tennessee State, but still playing number four, number five, everyone counts when you're in that starting lineup. What was the decision process that you made to go to Eastern Michigan? That's a good question. I, I wanted to make sure I played. I mean, at East Tennessee State, we we really had a good team and we had good players coming in. And I, I just wasn't confident I was going to play a ton. I mean, as you get older, 
you're not going to be a junior or senior playing number five a lot. I mean, you'd rather put a younger guy into that spot. So I just wasn't confident I was going to play a ton there. And I wasn't good enough, frankly. Um, and I knew that if I went to Eastern Michigan, I had some friends who were already on the team there. Coach Cunningham had done a really nice job. And I just knew that I was going to be able to compete. And I knew, I think I knew at that time, like professional golf was not going to be in my future. Um, but I did want to play a couple of years of competitive college golf and see how good I could get. And it's really hard to get good if you're not competing. So, um, that was a decision I made to go and finish there. It ended up being great. Um, and I still talked to coach Cunningham and, and I, I, heck, I still, uh, I still keep in contact with the ETSU program too. They, they're great. And, and um, coach Amos does a good job over there. Um, but it was just, it was just the right move for me to get a chance to play a little bit more competitive golf. That's all. Yeah. You have, uh, you got your name in the record books there at Eastern. I mean, let's not sell yourself short. I mean, I, I see a couple, uh, you know, a couple entries of now they, they have you as Bob Couture. Was there, I mean, is there, is that a different Couture or are they just, did, well, I mean, geez, who's I don't know. Guy? I might need to, I might need to touch base with those guys. I don't know. I don't even recognize who that guy could be. Okay. All right. I'm just saying that might, might be an imposter or something, but yeah, I mean, you got your name up there. You got a nice, uh, some nice finishes and a nice, uh, you know, scoring average and career scoring average there. Um, what did you do right after college? Because at some point, like you mentioned, you know, you're not, you're not going to turn pro and, uh, you know, it's time to, you know, get a job and become a working stiff like the rest of us. You know, what, you know, what did you kind of get into right after you got out of college? Well, my first job was in the golf business. I wanted to be in the golf business. I wanted to stay connected to some level with the game. And I moved to Dallas to work for Adams golf right out of school. And I worked in the call center. I just wanted to, I just wanted to stay connected to the game. And I, I moved to Dallas, didn't really know anybody um, and worked. I ended up having a <laughs> love in my career at Adams. I was there for 11 years and met so many great people um, and had a lot of different roles there. It was awesome. I ran our business for Canada and just learned a ton uh, working for a guy, Chip Brewer, who was obviously one of the most successful guys in the whole industry he was great. Couldn't have been better to work for. And, and I learned a ton from him and from all the other guys there. So it was, it was really great. And that's really the time. I mean, 90, like around, I guess around 99 or 2000, somewhere in that, in that time frame. And that's really, that's, I mean, I had Barney Adams on the podcast, which is just such a treat just talking to, I mean, the journey of the, of the tight lies fairway woods and just how, how that whole, that product line just absolutely exploded 20 years ago. I mean, really, you know, the, I guess you can argue and say really the, the birth of the hybrid. I mean, the birth of, I mean, there's so many clubs out now that you look at none of that ha really happens without tight lies and without, you know, really his technology. No, I mean, we, when we were at Adams and obviously I wasn't part of the management team at that point, it was really driven by, by chip, but we knew we needed to win somehow, right? Like what could we win? on we're not going to beat taylor maiden drivers right you know we're not going to beat cleveland at the time in wedges right we needed to figure out a way that we could win and really an underrepresented kind of part of the market really was the hybrid market and so we just kind of became leaders in hybrids and and hybrid sets we were one of the first i, I know over time people have done it a long time ago but we we're one of the first really kind of modern companies to to create a full hybrid set of clubs and I was there through that whole time. It was really cool to see. And we grew a ton. I mean, we had a ton of success and, you know, that was really just in part to Chip's leadership. I mean, he is just incredibly smart 
knows a lot about the industry and he, he and, and Tim Reed, who's over at Callaway as well now, um, they both drove that train. It, we really had a lot of success focusing on hybrids. Yeah. I remember just, uh, gosh, it seemed at that time, like everyone had, had some sort of a, uh, you know, some hybrid or fairway wood or something. I mean, everyone had something from Adams in their bag. It seemed, it just seemed like everyone had tons of stuff. It was, it was crazy. Now, now I'm guessing, you know, you got to get your career off the ground, but you, since you're around golf so much, you're still playing a little bit and you're transitioning into, you know, into that mid-am life where you get to kind of knock it around a little bit here and there. I know you play a lot of Texas golf association events. You won the mid-am there several times. You've represented the state of Texas in the uh, USGA state team championships, which I think it's unfortunate that that doesn't exist anymore, but that's a, that's a different episode. Um, when, when did you, I guess, kind of find your legs as a mid-am? Because it's one thing just to play on the weekends with your buddies, but you know now more than ever getting into competitive mid-amateur golf is a huge time commitment um, and, 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 and costly. When did you kind of start tinkering around with, okay, I think I want to play, I want to compete again. That's a good question. I, I kind of randomly qualified for the U.S. Mid-Am in 05. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I just find that. I just randomly showed up one day and they said, hey, you want to play the U.S. Mid-Am? No, okay, that's not how it happened. It, it, it was good. Well, I wasn't playing a ton of competitive golf at that time. I kind of dipped my toe into it. But I, I remember trying to qualify and making it and thinking, okay, um, I guess I'll go, I'll go do it. And I played the honors course some, we played there a little bit in college. So I was familiar with it. Um, but I went over there and played, played the mid-am didn't make the cut kind of was, I just wasn't playing a ton of competitive golf yet, but I remember thinking, man, I, I might be able to do this a little bit. And, yeah. and so it was really around that time that I started playing some more of the Texas golf association events and had some success kind of those next three or four years winning some events in Texas and that type of thing. And that kind of got me involved in, in the mid-am scene a little bit. What would you say is probably the biggest differentiator between guys that win tournaments at the mid-am level, maybe, you know, at the state level and guys that don't, I mean, you're, you just said that, you know, you'd never thought about turning pro um, wasn't in the cards for you. You're trying to get your career off the ground and, and get it set and there's guys just like you, they're trying to do the exact same thing um, with limited amount of time to commit to whether it's uh, practicing or fitness or testing equipment or traveling and, and playing different courses and, and just, you know, getting the competitive juices going. What has worked for you for, for so long? Um, I think being able to manage your time is pretty important. You know, at that time I didn't have kids. I wasn't married. I, I, so I had the time at that point to put into my game and I played on the weekends and I practiced in the evenings and that type of thing. But I think it's really time management. I mean, you see it knowing so many of these mid-ams it's hard when you got families and your kids are involved in things and, and careers. And there's just, there's a lot else to, to take care of it, It's so you have to really Gosh, even when I practice, I mean, I almost put it on my calendar as like a, I block off a couple hours to go do it. And and I think that's the way a lot of the guys do it is that's, that's really the only way to do it. I mean, it, unless you have some type of career where you, you really don't work or there's some situation where you don't work much, it's really difficult, um, especially if you have a family and have kids. But for me, I think it's just time management. I just, I, I just make sure if I've got some tournament on the horizon, I just have to get out and I have to get out 
for even an hour. You know, it's, I think it's really important. What's the biggest thing you focus on? If I give you an hour, hour and a half, and you know, you got 90 minutes, get the most out of it as you can. What do you immediately go to? I hit drivers and then I hit wedges mostly. Um, if you're, if you're a good driver of the ball, um, that's a huge advantage. And I've tried to pick up some speed the last couple of years, but if you're driving the ball, well, you're probably swinging well. And I'd say wedge play last couple of years around the greens and, and half wedges, distant wedge, distance wedges, that type of thing. I've spent a lot more time on. Um, that's, that's what kind of what I focus on if I'm cramming to go play in a tournament or something like that. Well, you've had a lot of success. You've played, gosh, you've, you've played the Crump Cup since 2008, which is, that has to be, I mean, gosh, we're talking, what, 14 years now, 13, 14 years. I think there's one in there you, you missed, but that, that has to be, (laughs) I guess that's, you talk about cramming for a tournament that you're not cramming for that you're preparing for that is circled on your calendar every single year, isn't it? Yeah, if anybody's truly prepared for that tournament, I don't know. I was going to say. I don't know who it is. (laughs) Yeah, no, you can't prepare for that. Well, because you just never know what kind of weather you're going to get. And also, yeah, it's one of the hardest golf courses in the world. And, yeah, how do you prepare for – that's a great question. How do you prepare for the Crump Cup? (laughs) It's more mental than anything, I think. Just expectation management, really. You just – you have to understand that, that at that place, maybe shooting 76 or 7 is not bad. Um, you know, we've had some days there over the years, gosh, there was one this year, Friday where yeah, there were scores in the high eighties and, and they set up the golf course perfectly. I mean, it couldn't have been set up any better. It was just, it was cold, it was windy and it was just, it was just an incredible test. So you just have those days there and you just have to have some good expectation management. I think that, Hey, shooting one fifty-two or three, sometimes there is not bad. What kind of a statement is it for Stephen Bear to win the Crump Cup in his first appearance at the Crump Cup? Well, it's incredible. And obviously, he's just really good. And yeah. there's a lot to be said for that. But I think I joke with him. I, I talked to him a little bit this year there. I've gotten to know him a little bit. And, and I will say this. Sometimes at places like that, it can almost be a little easier your first year or two because you don't know where all of the issues are. Right. Right. Like you, you haven't hit it in some of the places that are so dead that you just don't really know they're there. <laughs> I have so much scar tissue playing there as many years as I have. I know where all the tough spots are now. Um, but no, I, I do think it's a, it's an incredible achievement to play well there. And I just think there's no way to fake it at that place. I mean, it's, there's room to hit it off the tee. You've got to drive it. Great you've got to hit your irons great and you've got to putt really well. I mean, it's, it's a total examination of, of your game. I know they did it uh, before COVID hit, but they would allow the general public come in there to watch the final match on the, on the last day. Um, I, I'm That's gotta be a really cool experience just to see the looks on people's faces as they come in, just to kind of see Pine Valley for the first and perhaps the only time. That has to be, I, I would like to just see that look on people's faces just to be like, oh my gosh, I'm really here. It's it's very cool. And a lot of people come um, and they encourage that. It's really, it's really a neat tradition that they have um, with allowing people to come and watch the final match. And and it's not just the final match. I mean, there are other matches going on out there. There are other flights. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's, you know, there's the senior championship and all that. So I've, I've been a part of some matches on Sunday afternoon that have been pretty fun. 
um, where you've got several hundred people out there watching and they may be watching a different match just because it's hard to see in the championship match with so many people. So there are people kind of wandering around the golf course, just watching random golf. I had, I had a guy make a hole in one on me on number 10 in the finals of the third flight one year. And there were a lot of people around the green. It was kind of cool. That's really cool. Um, yeah, it, it was really cool. It was not cool for me, I guess, but it was cool for him. It was cool for me to see, oh, yeah. but it was, um, it was pretty neat. Um, there are a lot of people around and, and a lot of people just kind of walking around the golf course, just checking things out. Like you yeah. said, it's, it's, you know, people don't get the opportunity to go to a, a place like that a lot. How, how early do, uh, do people start signing up on the, uh, the pro shop shopping list every year before, knowing that you're heading to Pine Valley? I mean, I guess the hall that they, yeah, the, the amount of merch that's taken out of that joint that during Crump Cup week must be insane. I can only imagine, I can only imagine how much merchandise, uh, they sell. They have a great pro shop. It's small, but, um, I usually have a list of some things that, that people <laughs> send me up there for, for sure. Um, but I know you see guys walking out with huge bags full of stuff. I mean, it's, it's our one opportunity to go there in, in a year. Um, obviously there are some guys who get to go there more and some guys who are members that play in the event and that type of thing. But for most of us, you get a chance to go once a year and you really want to make it count. And we're just really fortunate to get to go to that to a place like that. I mean, they're so welcoming too. They, they really make you feel like they want you to be there. And you know, we've all probably been to clubs that are nice clubs where maybe you don't feel that way. No, um, no, I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. Um, maybe a few, but, but that one in particular at Pine Valley, they make you feel like, they they want you to be there yep. if you don't play well if you miss the cut if you lose a match if any they want you to be there they want you to hang out they want you to play the short course they want you to play the alternate shot tournament they want you to go to the dinners and not everyone does and i get that people have family commitments and stuff but they really make you feel like they want you to be a member for a few days and it's it's so cool for those of us who have limited opportunities to go there i uh, i have not obviously played in the crump cup but i have played there uh, i was a guest of a, of a very uh, generous member that brought me up there and i will echo your sentiment i can't think of any club that i've ever been to um more welcoming than uh pine valley i just i really felt like they you know wanted me to see everything wanted me to see the history showed me this i mean it was it was fantastic it was really fantastic. Yeah. I don't know how they do it. I mean, they have, they yeah, I have, mean, I mean, think about how many, I mean, it's all guests there all the time. I mean, every day is guest day. Yeah. It's a busy club from, from what I understand. Um, and it's, but the staff, like, I don't know how they, they retain their staff like they do. I mean, every year you go there, it's all the same guys. It, it just goes to show that like the membership is so great. The leadership there is so great. I mean, it's all the same guys. It, it's been the same guys working, you know, in the bar and the same guys yeah. just everywhere that from, from like literally when I first started going there in 08, I mean, they just, it, I just really think it goes to the quality of the leadership there and they just somehow they have an incredible staff. I just don't know how you find all these people um, that are so good. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I had a blast there. I, I hope to return again um, at some point. But uh, yeah, that's where I met uh, I, I met Jim Holgrieve there for the first time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was just was. like, yeah, my my uh, my host was like, 
uh, hey, you know that's Jim Holker. I'm like, I was like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> I was like, I know who the hell that is. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, let's talk about this title you won in 2011. You return to Canada. You win the Canadian Mid-Amateur Championship, which huge achievement there, but also gets you into that that realm that you said, oh, it's not in the cards for me. I'm not going to be a professional golfer. Well, you got one PGA Tour event on your resume. You played the 2012 RBC Canadian. Uh, pretty respectable, 72-73. You didn't completely, you know, go blackout on us, but, uh, you know, that's a respectable uh, uh, performance. Um, I mean, gosh, does it feel like 10 years ago? Sometimes it feels like it was yesterday. Uh, Sometimes yeah. it feels like it was more than 10 years. Okay. <laughs> um, but, yeah, 10 years ago, that is, that's funny. Yeah. Um, it was obviously a blast. I mean, it was a ton of fun knowing it was, you know, maybe my only opportunity, probably my only opportunity to play sure. in a PGA tour event. Um, it was a lot of fun. I, the golf course was great. It was, actually was a pretty good, pretty good mid am golf course. It was uh, Hamilton golf and country club, shorter golf course, um, pretty tight, long rough, but it was a lot of fun. I, I did. Okay. I think, I think I probably, if I'd have gone into it with, with, I, I kind of wish I had had higher expectations, frankly. I, I was there, like, really enjoying it, soaking it in. I had a ton of fun. But I think I could have played better. I think I could have – I really think I could have made the cut, honestly. Yeah. But I, I think I missed by four. Um, but I I enjoyed my time. I mean, it was the, probably my one opportunity to go and play in a PGA Tour event, and it was just a ton of fun. Yeah, it's kind of hard when you go in there because, you yeah, finding that balance, I think that's for, like, any golfer, whether it's like a – you know, like I'm thinking right now, like like Rex Hargrove just won the Jones Cup Junior, and he's getting an exemption to the Jones Cup in in a few weeks. I'm kind of thinking like that just popped into my head. I mean, he wants to go in and 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 have a lot of fun, but he also wants to compete. So finding that balance when you're maybe a little bit out over your skis, um, that's a challenging one for anyone at any level. So that's kind of interesting for you to say that you wish you, ex- I mean, are you, fair to say you you wish you expected more out of yourself. Is that kind of what you're getting at? I think that's fair to say. I mean, obviously I, I did the best that I could do, oh, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I felt like if I felt like I probably had the game to do a little bit better, uh, especially on that golf course. Now there's, there are certain golf courses where that probably wouldn't be the case, but it was a great golf course for me. Um, you know, there's a premium on, on accuracy and chipping and putting and that type of thing. It, it I do think I could have done better. I, the first day, I think I was two under through seven, maybe. I've got a kind of a funny picture somebody took of the leaderboard with me, like tied for third or something like there that. There you go. Which is kind of fun. There you go. <laughs> you got that. But, you got that framed on your wall. I understand. I understand. I've got it somewhere. I can tell you that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I always, you know, you think about the the amateurs that make it to the U.S. Open or that make it to the Masters. Um, course you know getting back to what we were talking about these young kids are probably more equipped to handle those big stages than the amateurs were maybe 10 years ago there's no question about it and i I will say this this was kind of a bit of a funny story from playing in the event so friday we played late i was in i think the last group off 10 and so friday afternoon the back nine everything's going the the stands are full and you know there's people in the tents having beers and it was fun there was a real atmosphere um, about kind of the back nine and people were having fun. And then we make the turn and go to number one. And it was like playing at a member guest. I mean, there were volunteers and caddies and that was it. It was really kind of funny 
um, that day on Friday, just, it was like you were out there alone after playing the back nine with just people everywhere yeah. and cheering and everything. It was really kind of funny. Wow. That had to have been a lot of fun. I mean, and also that's a, that's a, that's kind of rare. I mean, really having a mid amateur championship that rewards with a PGA tour event, uh, exemption, uh, right now I'm thinking, I mean, other than the U, obviously the U S mid am gets, gets U S mid am champ gets into the masters. And I know there's the, the devil's elbow tournament. That's relatively new that, uh, uh, rewards a PGA tour exemption to the Corrales and, and, uh, the Dominican. But other than that, I guess I really can't think of uh, any out there. No, there aren't many. Um, and the Canadian mid am has done it for a while. Yeah. Um, I actually lost in a playoff one year to Garrett rank. I think it might've been 2016 maybe, um, which, and obviously you want to win, of course you want to win a national championship, but I remember being probably even more bummed that I wasn't going to get back and go and play in the Canadian Open right, right. <laughs> because I had lost, uh, I'd lost in a playoff. But um, anyway, it was really cool that they did that for a period of years um, I think they may have stopped. I think just spots in those tournaments are at such a premium. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know that they do it anymore, but for a period of probably 10 or 12 years, they did. And it was a real kind of carrot for those of us who played in that event to have a chance to go play in a PGA tour event. Well, I know one guy that got to take advantage of that. How smart is it for Joe Duraney to be able to play in Canada? being a Mississippi guy. I mean, how, how is that, is that wise for them to even let him into the country? <laughs> it's a lot different than Mississippi. I mean, who runs that tournament? I mean, do you think they've it's, even checked his background? I mean, that can't be safe for anyone. Can it? No, no, there's no way. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, and Joe has had a couple of those opportunities. So good for him. He obviously is one of the best mid ams, but yeah, a guy coming out of Mississippi, it's uh, it's a lot different going up there to Canada. Um, but I have I kind of have a funny story about Joe Duraney playing. Who, d- who doesn't? But I love that you're going to share it on the podcast. But any anytime right. we can make fun of Joe Duraney, I mean, he hasn't been a guest here. We're trying to get that. You know, he has a whole team of publicists that work for him. So I'm trying to work my way into into the into that network <laughs> to try and get him set up. He has a whole team. It's he's very standoffish. It's just hard to get him. <laughs> It's, it's, it's just wow. really difficult, but I'm trying. He, and, yeah. I'm trying. He hard. schedules out. He schedules out a long time in advance. It's really hard to get. Yeah. And his, his media availability these days is just, it's really, really difficult. So. <laughs> I know that. Yeah. Uh, so this is funny. So this summer, so Joe won the Canadian mid-am a few years ago, right before COVID probably 19. Yep. And then, and then there were a couple of years where they didn't have the RBC Canadian open. So I saw him this year at the Travis Invitational up at Garden City. And I said, hey, Joe, are you going to get in the Canadian Open this year? Because you obviously are the last Canadian mid-am champ and they didn't have the Canadian Open. And he said, no, I kind of, you know, it's kind of a bummer. I'm, I'm, I'm not in. I said, oh, okay, well, that's too bad. So anyway, the week of the Canadian Open, I think it might have been Saturday. I happened to see something and I, I noticed the field and I to look at it just because I grew up up there and whatever. And I noticed that Joe was listed in the field. And I texted him and I said, Joe, I know you said you weren't getting in the Canadian Open, but man, I just saw the field list and you're on it. No and way. he said, there's no way. He said, nobody called me. Like he said, no, no, no. I don't think that's right. Uh, he said, nobody called me. Nobody told me I was in. So this is the Saturday before the event. Anyway, so he, he starts making some phone calls and he found out that he was in. 
Well, he was on vacation with his family. He was like in the middle of nowhere somewhere. He was in, he might've been at Yellowstone park or something. Oh my God. So yeah. So, so anyway, I said, Joe, you, you better figure out a way to get there. So of course he didn't have his clubs with him, nothing. So he somehow, I guess he got to the airport, flew home, picked up his clubs in Mississippi flew back up there and he got in like i don't know tuesday night wednesday morning something like that but you you can ask him that on the podcast when you do get him on i i joke with him that he owes me a couple of beers because if it hadn't have been for me he he wouldn't have got a chance to play that's hysterical <laughs> he never was contacted he didn't know anything about it no he said he had no idea that he was in the field and anyway All he right, did do, get to do, go no, and play no, let me ask you do, do do we believe him or do you think he just i mean do you think he just pulled a joe Duraney and just you know like absolutely i mean I, I i don't know i mean i i believe Maybe. you but i i'm gonna need to do some digging on this story you, 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 i don't know man joe joe gets up for those big events he I, gets well, up for those big events yeah yeah we're, so. gonna have to, we're gonna have to talk to him about it that's a little uh anyway. yeah but anyway, that, that that's does, funny that, that does sound like that does sound like joe Duraney though yeah but he sure got there he got there anyway he, he he and i have joked about that a couple times i said man you you would have got one less pga tour start in your life if it wasn't for me so you owe me a couple cold beers unbelievable only joe, <laughs> only joe Duraney. that's right let's talk a little bit about where you hang your hat merido golf club i know i've been there several times actually you know you you play your golf out of there I know you were on, you know, we just talked about being on the committee for the, for the U.S. Women's Four Ball that was there back in 2021. All right, I'm going to ask you about just the day-to-day -day there in a minute, but I want to ask, getting involved with the tournament ops aspect of a USGA championship. Now, you don't, I know you're involved a little bit with the Southern Golf Association, and I'm guessing that you've consulted and done a little bit with the Texas Golf Association as well. But this really was your first time kind of being on the, the ops side of an amateur golf tournament, wasn't it? It really was. It was, it was a ton of work. And uh, it was great. We obviously loved having the USGA at Merido. It was really cool. It was something that, you know, Merido was built to host tournaments, really. And that was Albert's vision for the club. But um, when they asked me to be chairman, I said, sure, I'm happy to do it. I played, in, obviously, some USGA events. And of course you think you know what goes on behind the scenes, but I can tell you it was a lot of prep. <laughs> um, it was a lot of on-site work. Now I've got to give Mark Welgus props. I mean, he did a ton of the work and he, he actually had had experience um, working with the USGA from his time at Shady Oaks. Uh, they had the senior am there once. So he had been involved in it a little bit um, and was a, was a huge, huge help. So he kind of guided me through it, but I can tell you it was a lot putting committees together, getting volunteers, all that type of thing. And then on site, gosh, I was there, I'd say 10 straight days from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. It was a ton. What, what were kind of some of the things that I guess you were brought in to consult with and to help with? I mean, you know, where where did the USGA kind of lean on you for just insight? Maybe not lean, I may, maybe that's a strong phrase, but just like when did they, where did they utilize your expertise? Well, and not just me, everybody at the club, really. But, you know, the club has to come up with, you know, we got to put together all the menus for every day. I mean, we when the USGA gets on site, they pretty much take over. And and they are experts at it. And I can tell you, I mean, Rachel Sadowski and Sarah Dustman are total pros. They were the two ladies that I dealt with, you know, primarily. They were awesome. Um, and they, but for us, it was more putting together volunteers, 
putting together schedules. I mean, gosh, you got to order uniforms for volunteers. You've got to, like I said, you've got to figure out all the menus. You've got to figure out the locker room. Like, you know, you kind of want to have some, a really nice experience for the players in the locker room. Um, so it was a lot of that. Now the logistics stuff when the USGA got on site was, um, mostly handled by them, but you know, we had to have a medical committee. I mean, you got to have a doctor on site every day from start to finish. Every time there's a player there, you have to have a doctor, um, just little stuff like that that you don't think about. So we had to put all that expertise together, all those people together. Um, and it, it was a little different because it was still in COVID time. So, you know, access to the club, we had to really figure out who can be on site. Um, you know, can members be there? It was, it was a little bit different who can be in the clubhouse and and that type of thing. So it was, it, that made it a little bit different, but it really was, it was a ton of fun, but it was a lot of work. And there was a lot of kind of last minute, like, Oh geez, we ran out of this. We got to go figure out how to get it. Um, So it was, (laughs) it was, it was really interesting, but I, I saw the behind the scenes on the course setup stuff, which, you know, I, I didn't really know much about, and it, there is a lot that goes into it. I can promise you that. Yeah. And unfortunately that was the time that the winter freeze was, you're just coming out of the winter freeze. So the course obviously was not looking the way, um, I mean, truth be told, it's just, it, it did not look the way you would have hoped obviously, but, uh, you know, kudos to Tanner Westbrook for the superintendent there for, for having it playable where you can contest a national championship. Cause I know that was a big, uh, that was a struggle, but still, Hey, it was a great competition and great final match. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll, all evidence shows there was a huge success and that they were thrilled that, uh, with what Merido did. I think they were, I mean, I think, you know, the infrastructure of the club was still kind of evolving at that point. Um, and you're right. I mean, we, we really got hit hard with the freeze in February. The course wasn't what we wanted it to be. I mean, it it was the best that it could be, but I mean, there was just, there was nothing anybody could have done. I mean, every course in Dallas basically looked like that. So that was a shame, but, uh, um, I I think the relationship with the USGA is great. I think, uh, we probably hope to have another USGA event at some point. Um, the golf course I think could handle any, any event that the USGA has. Uh, and I think the infrastructure can now too. Our new clubhouse is, is going to be opening soon and we'll have a new comfort station and all that sort of stuff. So I think, we'll be well positioned to host another event. If the USGA is interested in bringing one there, I hope they do. Well, you're talking about the greatest players in the country coming to play there. And and I know you have members that um, are some of the best players in the world. Um, you know, a lot of pros are there. Most notably, I know Zalatoris is there. I've, I think I've seen him every time. I also see Tony Romo there all the time. I, th- I don't think I've missed seeing him in any tournament that I've been at Emerito. He's playing there all the time. And, I, maybe this is more towards Zalatoris than Romo because Zalatoris does this for a living. They have to have the right facility to work on their game, but then they also have to have a golf course that tests them enough to prepare them for the difficulty of the PGA Tour or playing in a U.S. Open or an Open Championship. What do you think it is about Merido that helps the professionals as much as it does? It's a real test. First of all, our practice facility is world-class. I mean, there, there are not very many places that have a practice facility like ours, but I think the golf course, just if you can play there, you really can play anywhere. I mean, it is very, very difficult. And if you go all the way back, I, I, I don't think other than the majors, these guys see a test like that. So 
you know, for a guy like Will, for a guy like Davis Riley, you know, all those other guys who are there and play their golf there, I, I think it's a huge advantage for them. I mean, they get to go and play a championship type golf course every day. And there's a big difference between country club golf and championship golf. I mean, there are a lot of country clubs around that are great, but they're not going to get you ready to go play at a high level like those guys are trying to do. And I think Merido does. So what's your favorite game at the club? You have all these different people that you can play with all different walks of life. Give me a good game that you find yourself in. Yeah, there's a really good Saturday morning game that everybody plays all levels. And especially during COVID, I mean, you'd sign up for the Saturday morning game and you'd get there and, and, you know, be you and Davis Riley and some 12 handicap. And I mean, everybody plays. And I think that's the beauty of the club is that if you don't join Merido, if you don't like golf, right, it's not the kind of place that it's not a social club. It's not a country club. It's a golf club. It's really welcoming. It's a family golf club, but it's a golf club. And if you don't like golf and either play at a decent level or want to play at a decent level, you're not there. So I think games like that, where you truly can mix in with all those guys is, is really cool. I mean, you get the opportunity to play with guys who are, you know, winning events, contending to win majors, all that. And, and not even the guys who are just on tour now, like guys like the Cootie boys and, um, you know, all the corn fairy guys. I mean, there's, there's just, you just don't ever get an opportunity to go to many clubs where everybody is trying to get better at golf. But I think that's the case with Merido. Who are you seeing there that maybe you're kind of bullish on that, that is going to be on tour, that's going to be doing some special things, or maybe some that's already on tour that just hasn't cracked through yet. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the cooties and Zal Taurus, but who, who should people that follow, follow golf should be on the lookout for that's coming out of Merido. Maybe I'd say maybe Taylor Moore, you know, Taylor played on the corn ferry a couple of years and just continued to get better. Um, got his PGA tour card last year and kept it, which is really, I don't want to say rare as a rookie, but it's hard to do. Kept it pretty easily, made it to a couple of the events, uh, maybe the second or third FedEx cup event, but Taylor has just gotten better. The guys I've talked to have said he's gotten a lot more mature he really, he, he's a pro, he's a true pro. He works on his game. So I would say Taylor, like could be the next guy. I mean, everybody knows about Will, everybody knows about Davis Riley and a lot of those other guys, but I, I think Taylor is a guy who could be a really good player for a long time on the PGA tour. Yeah. I really, you know, Will's been on this podcast three times and unless you have a funny or an embarrassing story about Will Zalatoris, I, th- I think we should just move on. I think we talk about him way too much here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't have too many embarrassing stories about Will. I will say this about Will, though. And, and oh, you know, I've don't, known don't, him. Make, I, don't make it something nice. I mean, uh, oh, I just God. can't. I'd love to rip on the guy. Oh, I really would. There's geez. just nothing. I mean, I know there's just it's really hard to find something about Will <laughs> that, that you don't like. I'll say this. He is the greatest guy with, for example, my kids. I was at a tournament somewhere this year and my kids were playing in the PGA Junior League. And my wife sends me this picture. And there they are on the putting green wearing their PGA Junior League uniforms, and they're just having a putting contest with Will. Like, he, he is truly cool. the nicest guy. He really is. And I know he he's obviously been incredibly successful, um, but I have not noticed any change at all in Will. I mean, he, he is the nicest guy. Um, he's the hardest worker too. I, I mean, he works at it every day. If he misses a cut, which I know is pretty rare, 
he's out there Saturday morning working on his game and he, he is really, really a hard worker and his success is not an accident. I can promise you that. How much money do you owe him? <laughs> yeah. Uh, how, how bad is it? How, how, bad, how, yeah. bad, how bad is this whole thing? Um, <laughs> before I let you go, Rob, you know, one of my big, you know, tr- actually one of the most important, uh, marks of the back of the range or the milestones of the back of the range is really when uh, I put a camera in my hand. And the first time I ever did that, believe it or not, was two years ago at the East West matches in 2020 and just got back, you know, this November for the for the rematch, so to speak in 2022. And we know that the East team really did take care of the West team this year. They kind of had some revenge over that loss in the inaugural matches in 2020. And what, what I find so interesting about those matches is I mean, the strength of the mid-am game, I think I think the number of USGA appearances between the 40 guys in the room, about you know 18 on each side and then the two captains, really it's in that 6 to 650 range. I mean, 650-some-odd USGA appearances uh, combined with both teams. I know that's a big staple of the tournament schedule for Merido, and it's going to be for quite a long time. You played in the first uh, East-West matches I know you didn't play in the second one, but you were there kind of spectating, kind of keeping an eye on what was going on. Just how impressive is the mid-am game now? And also, can you imagine what it's going to be like the next 10 years? It's really impressive. It's it's changed a ton kind of from when I first started to get involved in the mid-am game. And I, I think a lot of it is the visibility. I mean, when I first started playing in some of these mid-am events, I, didn't, I don't know if I even really knew what they were. You know, I didn't know the history of, you know, the Coleman Invitational or, or the Travis Invitational, the Crump, you know, events like that. And I think now there's so much more visibility. I mean, guys finish college and say, hey, my, my goal is to go get a good job and play in on the cocktail circuit, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's a real thing with a lot of these guys. And none of us were ever like that. So it is impressive. I mean, you've got guys that come out like Evan Beck obviously has played great. Um, you know, being a young guy coming out of school and, and you're starting to see some of these guys that that really is their goal. Steven bears, another example, um, that he was successful enough in college. He clearly could have thought about playing professional golf, but just decided that that wasn't for him. So, um, there's a lot to shoot for in the mid am game. I mean, the East West is certainly a really, something that's a goal for most of the guys, obviously. And so is the concession cup in, in the other years, but it was an idea that Scott Harvey and Albert Huddleston came up with. Kevin Marsh has been really involved, obviously, but it, it just gives you some reason to continue to play. um, And just to chase something because it's such a reward for a couple of good years of golf. It's so competitive. Uh, I I'm biased. I know, but I think Merido is the perfect place to have it geographically. And also it's a great match play golf course. Um, and it's just, it's just come together with a bunch of guys who we see each other at, at all the events. We all know each other. Um, and it's just fun to, to play match play against these guys at a great place. It's, it's a neat reward for a couple of good years in mid-end golf. Yeah. You're talking about the strength of the mid-end game. You know, you qualified for the U S mid-end last year in 2021. And I actually went through to look at the qualifying scores all over the country and, you know, I qualified in 2012, I think I shot 71, 70, and normally something like that kind of gets you through. And I was looking at some of the scores all over the country and I'm seeing like 67s, 68s are 
playing off. Like, yeah, and, I think and, the hardest the, the the hardest thing about the U.S. Mid-Am anymore is qualifying for it. I mean, yeah. not that not that the strength of field isn't great. It, clearly, it is. But but when you get there, I think you usually feel like you can be really competitive. It's just hard to make it. I think I played with Denny Bull somewhere this year. And he told me in Iowa, I think he shot 67 and didn't make it Yeah, on, on a legitimate golf course. I mean, he said it wasn't a pitching putt. I mean, it was a legitimate golf course. And there were just a couple scores lower than 67. I mean, it, it can happen. So it is, it's hard to, on just a given day, produce a great round of golf every year. I mean, it's really hard to make it every year unless you're exempt or, you know, unless you're Stu and I, or you've got to win or something like that, but it's just really hard to go and qualify for the U S mid end every single year. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, and you know what else is getting really ridiculous too, is the, is the, uh, is the U S four ball. Yeah. U S four ball is, has gotten just, I think I saw down here a couple guys that I know that, that shot 60, 64s got him a second alternate. I think so. I think, and I haven't played in the four ball. I haven't tried to qualify for it, but I know it's taken 61, 62 at some of these places. And I've heard it's a, just, just a blast. It's the most fun events you can play in. Um, so I think everybody wants to go play in it. So it gets a really great strength of field, but it, it's just hard. It's hard to make it. And I just think it has to do with the fact that, you know, all the guys are better. There's more focus on mid am golf. Everybody wants to try to get into these events and guys are working on their games. It's not just kind of a pastime. I mean, there are guys who I don't want to say play mid-am golf full time, but it's a big, big focus of their life. It's not kind of a secondary deal to everything else they do. Right. Well, I think, you know, we don't talk a lot about the professional golf uh, landscape here at the back of the range very much, but I actually think that with the money being so top heavy, with the PGA tour and with live and the entry into the professional ranks being so difficult, whether it's, you know, Q school and corn Ferry and just how costly it is to, to try and make it. I'm selfishly hoping that, like you said, more and more guys are going to be like, you know what? I can go get a job. I can sleep in my own bed 300 nights out of the year and I can travel and play, if I work on my game and really get there, I can play U.S. mid-ams, U.S. amateurs, get on that list and where I can go play, you know, Crump, Coleman, and and uh, and Thomas every year. Yeah, that I think I'll take that life. That sounds pretty cool. It is, and and I'm I'm lucky that I've been able to be a part of it. And I can tell you, like these, well, I'll tell you, Zalatoris jokes with me all the time about all of our schedules. He knows a bunch of guys that play in the cocktail type events. And he's like, man, you guys play a better schedule than I do. Half the time. I mean, it, there's a lot of visibility to it and people are just really aware that, that it can be a great life. You, know, you can go and, and get a good job playing these events. It gives you some reason to keep your game competitive and, you know, spend time with your family. And I, I mean, I don't know how these guys do it who play professional golf. It's just, I don't, I don't see how you could play golf under that kind of stress. I really don't. So it's, it, it is a real thing that guys really want to get involved in the mid-am game. I think it's awesome. Yeah. Cause uh, you know, you, you bounce around. I mean, gosh, I'm, I'm seeing the best gamers in the world and, and you have to realize that 95% of them are not, I mean, they're going to maybe have a, you know, they'll, they'll play a couple of years in, in Canada or they'll play a couple of years in Latin America. Maybe they'll make a, a, you know, they'll make it onto the corn ferry for a year or two. Maybe they'll Monday into a PJ tour event, but really for the most part, that's, 
that's going to be the general extent of their professional career. And by 2930, they'll be like, well, now what? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think there are guys who are playing high level college golf right now who probably don't have any intention of doing that. I think they would rather just get involved in the mid-am game and, you know, live a really successful life, have a nice job and a family and all that. And, um, I mean, obviously professional golf can be really rewarding for a lot of people, but I, I think if you're not hundred percent sure that it's for you, I, I think the mid-end game can be awesome at any level. It doesn't mean you have to get in all the best events. I mean, you can play in, in your state events and there are a lot of events to play in four balls, the type of thing, but it's a blast. It's a lot of fun. And it's been, been a lot of fun for me the time that I've been able to do it, which is, you know, the last 15 years or so it's been a blast. Well, I'm going to let you go and get ready for the holidays, but one of the cool things about the East-West matches this year was uh, the night before it started. Um, I mean, when you have a, a guest speaker roll in by the name of Lee Trevino, it doesn't get much better than that. And, boy, you want to see a room shut up real quick. <laughs> have Lee Trevino get behind a, a lectern with a microphone, and, yeah, you could hear a pin drop. Not his first time, though, at Merido. you got a couple – got a Trevino story rolling around there, don't you? I've got a few. Yeah. So he does come out there a lot. His son, Daniel's a member there, a good player, but Lee comes out just about every morning and hits balls. He'll come out in the summer and hit balls early in the morning, hit 60 or 70 balls and go home before it gets too hot. But he just, he is exactly the same in person as you would think he is. I mean, he comes up to everybody on the range, starts a conversation and he's got some guys. There's a, a young guy out there who's playing college golf and Lee spends hours working with this guy. Really? Like, and I don't, I don't even think he probably knows how cool it is that he's got Lee Trevino as basically his coach. I mean, yeah, there's no chance. Lee, <laughs> there's no chance. And, but Lee will do that. I mean, I mean, it's not like I've ever asked him to come over, but he will come over and he'll spend an hour with you just working with you because he just loves to do it. He loves people. He loves the game. He loves being around and he is, he is the nicest guy you could ever imagine. And he's always up for saying hello to people um, and, and working with people. He's, he's kind of the last of that era of guys that played against Hogan and Nicholas and, you know, all those guys. He tells stories about Jackie Burke and uh, it's amazing. It really is amazing. And he is always so generous with his time, but I will tell you, this young guy, Hudson Weibel, who plays for Oklahoma, I mean, he spends hours with Hudson on his wedge game, on everything else, and it's just, he's so selfless with his time. He just loves the game. Having Lee Trevino as your wedge coach, get out of here. That's, um, I think, I think, I can't imagine. yeah, I can't imagine that either, but, but you are kind of giving me an idea. Don't you think I should probably just bring two microphones and a recording device to the range at Merida one morning and just sit and see who shows up? Well, yeah, you would have a constant stream of guys to be on the podcast, but Trevino could probably fill 10 podcasts. That's I mean, he has, of, yeah. He has the best stories. And we, we were all at the back of the range one day. It was in the summer, and there were six or seven of us back, back behind, kind of at the back of the range. And uh, Josh Gregory was there, and Lee, and just a couple of us who were members. And he just kind of got going. And he really, he just talked for about an hour and hit balls and talked and talked about equipment and told stories. And one of the guys said, hey, do you mind if I video a little bit of this? And Lee said, sure. So 
you know, he has this video of Trevino just totally unfiltered for probably 15, 20 minutes, just talking yep. about golf and history. And it's the coolest thing. It, it's just, it's so neat to be able to be around a guy like that. He's kind of the last of that era. Well, I, uh, that's definitely giving me some ideas. We may need to, to strategize a way to, to, to make that happen. Lee Trevino at the back of the range. I, I can't, I can't imagine it being any better than that. He'll talk to anybody. That's for sure. Well, I'm definitely anybody, so I, I definitely think uh, yeah, we can work on that. Well, Rob, I really appreciate the time. I know this. Uh, I wish you well as you get your game ready for 2023. I know I'll be seeing you at uh, the Gasparilla down in Tampa at the end of February. And uh, happy holidays. I appreciate you stopping by the back of the range. Yep, I'll see you down at Gasparilla, Ben. Appreciate it, and uh, thanks for having me on. Special thanks to Rob Couture for joining me on this episode here at the back of the range. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Every episode, all the merch, everything you need is at thebackoftherange.com. We'll see you next time here at the back of the range.